Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 for our catechism lesson of the day. Michael, Aaron, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the practice of catechism preaching, so just a word of explanation for you as visitors today. Uh, in our uh, churches, in our tradition, it's very common to preach through the catechism in its 52 Lord's Days, um, sequentially, uh, for a variety of reasons, which if you're interested, I'll tell you later, but basically that's what we're, we're doing here. Our 1030 service is a catechism service. And catechism, of course, is a human document. It's not inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. But it is a biblical document in that it follows the outline of the book of Romans. Uh, it is a teaching method used by Jesus himself, a pedagogical method of question and answer. And it has been tr tested, tried, and true over the course of hundreds of years as a faithful reflection of the scripture's teaching. So I'm going to be reading from Lord's Day 27 and ask you to respond with the answers to these three questions. They're found on page 884, 884. We're in the second section of the Catechism, which deals from deliverance from sin and misery through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in this section that the sacraments are dealt with. And they are in that second section dealing with deliverance from sin and misery because they themselves are a picture of the gospel and how God has delivered sinners from sin and misery uh, through uh, the work of Jesus Christ. So we're looking particularly at baptism today, uh, moving on to the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day, God willing. So does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has Should infants also be baptized? Very good. And then, then turning to the Word of God, a particular portion, Genesis chapter uh, 18, uh, going to be looking at verses 18 and 19 um, here, and uh, doing something a little bit different. Um, the title of the sermon is Covenantal Consequences. I'll be focusing on that last question, question and answer 74, with respect to uh, infants or children of believers uh, being baptized, just to... Uh, a survey, if you will, um, a covenantal uh, perspective 
um, uh, set forth not so much a defense of infant baptism as a rehearsal of uh, a perspective of how to view the Bible, and that is covenantally with respect to uh, children uh, being in view, and then the consequences of that and why uh, these things are important. So uh, here, what follows for what it is, the Word of God, beginning in verse 18 of Genesis 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The Bible is a covenantal document. What is a covenant? It is a relationship that God makes and guarantees by his word, as the children's catechism says. And a covenantal perspective uh, teaches us from Scripture that in all covenants there contain two parts. Those two parts are promise and obligation, or promise and demand. And you see that here, the promise is in verse 18. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham. That promise is repeated five times in the book of Genesis, not going to look at all of them. Uh, but you see the demand side in verse 19, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that, purpose clause, the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. All right? So you see the promise, all nations will be blessed in Abraham. Abraham's demand or obligation is to raise his children by doing righteousness and justice in order that God may bring about the fulfillment of his promise. So what's a covenant? Covenant is a relationship that God makes guarantees by his word. In all covenants there are contained two parts, there are pro that is promise and demand. Now, suffice it to say that what we're looking at here, all right, is uh, a couple of things, all right? First of all, um, it is God's will and declared purpose that his saving grace runs in the line of families, all right? We can see this, we turn back to Genesis chapter 17, the promise made to Abraham and to his seed. We see it here in Genesis 18. Um, I have about 20 other verses, I'm not going to repeat them all if you're interested, or if you're listening, you can uh, contact me afterwards, I'll give you plenty of uh, biblical citations for that, all right? Secondly, um, is that uh, parents are charged by God as Abraham to nurture their children in Christian faith and love. This is very different, for example, from evangelizing children, all right? You don't evangelize the children of believers, not that they don't need the gospel, of course not, we'll get to that, all right? But we nurture children, why? Because children of believers are to be considered Christians, all right? More on that in a moment. Parents are charged to nurture their children in, in Christian faith and love. That's what we see the charge to Abraham here, all right? Look at the text, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the promise might be fulfilled. And that brings me to the next point. Faithful nurture of covenant youth is the divine instrumentality of their awakening to spiritual life. 
It is the means God uses to bring his promise to fulfillment. All right? Faithful nurture of covenant youth is how God brings about the fulfillment of his promise. We've said this over and over again, that God, along with the end that he sovereignly appoints, sovereignly appoints the means to that end. All right? And so God appoints salvation. The promise is to you and to your children. How is that going to come about? By using the means that God has ordained, which we see in verse 19. All right? The faith and salvation of covenant youth is by and large dependent on the faithfulness of the nurture that is given. God uses means and parents are those means. You can see this negatively, which I'm not going to focus on this morning, uh, that unfaithful, unbelieving nurture and or negligence results in Condemnation, Hophni and Phineas, Eli with Hophni and Phineas, David's adultery, its effects on Amnon and Tamar, David's being inattentive, ineffective, feckless, and incompetent as a parent, and the effect on his children, Absalom and Adonijah, just as some examples quickly referenced. All right? So, a couple of other things on covenantal perspective here, all right? And admittedly, I'm using this text as a springboard, all right? It is a topical sermon, to be sure. First of all, children are included by God in the covenant of grace, all right? God promises to be the God of Abraham and his children, all right? I will be a God unto you and to your seed after you. This is, if you will, and you've heard me use the term if you've been here any length of time, a Hebraism, all right? And a Hebraism, as Pastor Dan could tell you with his great learning, is a biblical shorthand, all right? And I will be your God and you will be my people. Notice it is corporate. It is not individualistic. Our American rugged, rugged individualism in the United States lends us uh, or inclines us to look at the Bible individualistically. But as I've said over and over again, the Bible is not God's love letter to you. It is written to a people, all right? And when God makes a promise covenantally, he makes it to a people. Now, the people include individuals. Don't misunderstand me, all right? But I will be your God and you will be my people is a Hebraism that's biblical shorthand for the gospel, all right? For the gospel, all right? To be our God is the Bible's way to comprehend the whole of eternal salvation in the fewest words. And the promise of the gospel is this, all right, to, uh, to believers and their children. First of all, God promises his righteousness, all right? What is the gospel? The gospel is our sin goes to Jesus, right, and his righteousness comes to us. God promises his righteousness to believers and their children. Psalm 103, verse 17, you can write these down. I'm not going to take the time to turn to all these references, all right? Secondly, God promises his Holy Spirit to believers and to their children. In Isaiah 59, verse 21, God promises forgiveness of sins to believers and to their children. Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost, the promises to you and to your children, as well as now that the gospel is broken beyond the bounds of national Israel to all that are afar off, a term for the goyim, the nations in the Old Testament, all right? Acts 2, 38 and 39. And God promises his salvation to believers and to their children. Acts 16, 
31. You will be saved, you and your household. All right? I realize people see that maybe a little bit different. My point, you just have to take it from my perspective, all right? We can talk about it later. That's the gospel, all right? I will be your God. You will be my people. I promise you my righteousness, my spirit, my forgiveness of your sins, and my salvation, all right? All of the above are promised to children as well as to parents. I will be your God. You will be my people is the core central promise of the covenant that God makes not only with Abraham, but with, for example, the Corinthian church as well. You see that reference, all right? So it's not just Old Testament. So let's just get this kind of big picture covenant, all right? The Bible is a covenant document. What is a covenant? A covenant is a relationship that God makes and guarantees. He makes it with believers and with their children. I will be your God and, uh, and uh, uh, to your children, all right? And that is a Hebraism or biblical shorthand, Jewish shorthand, Hebrew shorthand, however you want to refer to it, uh, for the gospel, all right? That's the promise of the gospel. And whereas in all covenants there are contained two parts, therefore are we by God admonished unto and obliged unto new obedience, namely that we cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we never forsake him or depart from him. That's the obligation side of the covenant. That promise is given to children as well as to believers. And an obligation is therefore laid upon them. Now, broad outlines, that's a covenantal perspective. Much more could be said. Like I said, I'm not trying to present a defense of infant baptism here. It's very interesting that even those who disagree with infant baptism would uh, treat their children uh, as Christians and raise them in much the same way. What are the consequences of that? Well, let me give you a few. First of all, um, assurance. Assurance. You may have caught it as we read question 73. More importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. Some months ago, Pastor Dan preached on improving your baptism, a question from the Westminster Larger Catechism. And it says in times of doubt, we ought to make reference to our baptism. Why? Not because baptism saves us, but because it's a picture of what Jesus Christ and God, and by his Holy Spirit, is done. He has poured out his Spirit to wash us, to make us new creations, to cleanse us, to forgive our sins. We need to refer to our baptism to remind us of what it is that God has done. Baptism doesn't save anyone, right? But to remind us as a picture of the gospel, what God has done, and the promises that God has attached to baptism. God wants to assure us by that, right? John Calvin in his Strasbourg Catechism for Young Children has this very interesting question. Remember, this is for children, right? Are you, my son, a Christian in fact as well as in name? Yes, my father. How do you know yourself to be? Because I am baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Baptism is given, all right, and I mentioned this previously, as a means of assurance, right? And what is the assurance? When you look at your baptism, you see the gospel. You see what God and Jesus Christ has done to make us new creations, to wash us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to bring us into um, his uh, members of his people. And all the promises are attached to that. All the promises are attached to that. His righteousness, his spirit, his forgiveness, his salvation. I look to my baptism, I say, God, you promised me. You promised me. Now, of course, there are obligations, all right? We'll get to that in a moment, okay? Secondly, prayer. And I'm talking here specifically about children of believers, all right? Believers teach their children to pray, even though the Bible says God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners. So if we don't regard our children as Christians, why are we teaching them to pray if God won't hear them? But for believers in a covenantal perspective, we teach our children to pray because we believe God hears them. God hears the prayer of the children of believers. And that's an immense privilege. That's no small thing, right? Our children are not vipers and diapers, right? That God looks on disapprovingly. No, God loves the little children, all right? <clears throat> Thirdly, discipline. All of these are with respect to consequences for our children of believers. Discipline, okay? Matthew Henry, the well-known commentator of a bygone era, was asked by a man, says, what do you do when your children, there's two fathers talking, right? He says, what do you do when your children disobey you? Matthew Henry's answer, I grab them by their baptism. I grab, grab them by their baptism. What was he saying? He's saying, I remind them who they are. I remind them that they belong to God. And I remind them of their obligations to God. To live a righteous life. To pursue godliness without which no one shall see the Lord. You can't talk like that. You can't act like that. You can't be like that. Discipline. Parents, as you raise your children, use this. All right? Follow Matthew Henry's example. This is what baptism does. It teaches us not only the promises of the covenant, but the obligations of the covenant. No, my son. No, my daughter. You're a Christian. You can't talk. And you say, well, that's the way we talk to adults. That's right. That's the way we talk to adults. We talk to children the same way. We talk to them because they're included by God in the covenant of grace. They're to be thought of and spoken to and treated as Christians. No different than adults, of course, in an age-appropriate way. We don't teach calculus to an eight-year-old, right? So we don't talk about infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism to an eight-year-old. But we grab them by their baptism and say, no, you're a Christian. You can't talk like that. You can't live like that. Leave your sister alone. You can't be beating her up. <laughs> you got to love her. But she did this. Oh, but if we're to love our enemies, you can love your sister. <laughs> so discipline, all right? Here's a big one. Children dying in infancy. What do we say to a grieving parent whose child has died in infancy. Now, thankfully, in my tenure in this congregation, we've not had that happen in this congregation. Thank you, Jesus. But in my former charge, had many children die 
and infancy. And in the history of the Christian church, infant mortality was very, very high. Mortality, death, was high. Survival rate, you look back and you look at like uh, Wesley's, right? And I, I think Susanna Wesley had, what was it, 15, 18 kids? But like only, only six or eight or 10 survived. The rest of them died in infancy. What do you tell a grieving parent? Their child just died. Now, if you survey the landscape that's out there, generally, and I, I want to be charitable, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical, but people kind of do theological somersaults to say that that child was in heaven. And I'm not going to go through all the examples, but children are born sinners, right? So, well, not to go, sir, even the Westminster Catechism, I'm trying to remember shorter or larger, <clears throat> says, what about children dying in infancy? The answer is woefully, pastorally insensitive. It says, elect children dying in infancy will be saved. Well, if you know any, that's a tautology. Of course, elect children are going to be saved. <laughs> but was my child an elect child? What am you going to tell that parent? Nobody knows God's eternal decree of election. That doesn't help. It's pastorally insensitive to say, I would never, ever tell that to a parent whose child just died in infancy. That's no comfort or consolation whatsoever. The canons of Dort, picking up on this understanding of the covenant, says, because we judge of God's decree, and I'm not quoting this verbatim, by virtue of his word revealed to us, not the inscrutable decree of election, which nobody can know. We are to judge of God's will by his word revealed to us. We ought not to doubt the salvation of children dying in infancy. Now, that's comforting. Why? Because God's promises, the promise of his righteousness, his spirit, his forgiveness, his salvation, is to the parents and to that child. And that's how we're to judge the will of God, by what he has revealed. Not by trying to plumb the depths of inscrutable, eternal decrees of election. An immense blessing. To be able to go to a grieving parent and say, you ought not to doubt. God's made promises to you and to your child. Believe those promises and take comfort in the promises of the gospel. Look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 24. I mentioned last week that sacrament of uh, the sign and seal of the covenant, circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New, and the Lord's Supper are not insignificant, inconsequential, or uh, to be easily glossed over. Why? Because God was going to kill Moses or the baby, and God killed people in the Corinthian church for being reckless with the signs of his covenant, sign, seal of the covenant, and uh, in uh, both for children or 
uh, for believers in the Corinthian church. Matthew chapter 11, 24, the question always arises, but what about if a covenant child grows up and doesn't believe? Did we make a mistake in baptizing them? Did we make a mistake in appending and bestowing promises upon them in baptism? Absolutely not. Why? Because in all covenants there are contained two parts. Wherefore are we by God obliged unto, all right, new obedience, namely that we cleave to, so we raise children, say, you're a covenant child. You have an obligation to God. You have an obligation to believe. You have an obligation to pursue holiness. You have an obligation to live as a Christian. And if you don't, if you don't, the curses of the covenant will fall upon you. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Who's the you? Well, look back at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now, you have to know something of the geography of Israel, all right? And and let me just read the other verses. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment than for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to hell. For if mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained till this day. It would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What in the world is going on here? It'll be more tolerable for Sodom than these cities. Well, if you know the geography of Israel, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are in the northernmost region of Israel. That was considered where most religious Jews of the day lived. And notice, that's where Jesus performed I forget the percentage, maybe up to 90% of his itinerant ministry was in that northern region where most of the religious Jews lived. And that's what he says in verse 20. Most of his mighty works had been done, but they didn't repent. They were God's covenant people. They had the word. They had the sacrifices. They had the ministry. They had all the promises of God's covenant. They had been instructed for hundreds of years in the Torah, They should, if anybody, should have recognized the Messiah and responded in faith and obedience. It should have been them, but they did not repent. And God says, it's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment than Sodom. Why? Because they were in the covenant and they should have known better. So covenant children don't get off the hook. They don't get an easier ride. It's actually more serious for a covenant child to be baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lastly, education. Kelvin, who's a board member with me of Covenant City Academy, along with Eddie Urban, newly added board member, Kelvin and I were discussing education at a board meeting, uh, was it this past week or last week? I forget, two weeks ago. And uh, we were talking about Christian education as a responsibility of uh, Christian parents. That's why we're trying to start this school, 
Why? Because parents are charged by God to nurture their children in Christian faith and love. And that faithful nurture is what God uses to bring them to saving faith. So Christian education is very important, and this school is no small enterprise. At the moment, it's small in size, but it is not small in vision. It's not small in the labors that Chadi and Julie and now Joanna and others are pouring into it. Why? For the basis of our covenant youth. We've been blessed as a congregation with multitudes of children. It's such a joy after 11.30 service to see all the kids running around here. Sean Tubby just loves them, <laughs> running around, picking them up, playing with them, right? It's just a joy to see. I can't even remember how many kids are running around after church, right? Sometimes they get underfoot, and it's like you get a little wobbly. It's, but thank God. I'd rather have those children under my feet than no children, right? You know? But what's the obligation? We as, a, we as a congregation and the parents have a responsibility to raise them to see all of life through the spectacles of scriptures. To take, thought every, uh, to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. To bring those children up to be faithful Christians in the world, in the church, in God's kingdom. Teaching them to think God's thoughts. Teaching them to think biblically, to see all of life biblically. That's an enormous enterprise, but it's a consequence of the covenant. And if I could just mention this, all right? Years ago, when I started itinerary, itinerating, that is filling pulpits, I would go out to West Sayville. It was before Pastor Dan was there, probably if I remember your age, Dan, it might even been before you were born. <laughs> but I would go and I would spend the day, because they had morning and evening service, I would spend the day with Jake Clausen, one of the elders there. And I remember him teaching, about, teaching, him teaching me a valuable lesson about Christian education that I never forgot. He was retired at the time, so he was probably at least 65. Maybe he was a little bit older. He's gone to be with the Lord. He says, I still support Christian education, which meant that financially he was supporting the Christian school, which they had started there in West Sayville. At 65, his kids were adults and had kids in school. He said, because it's a covenantal commitment. It's not just a commitment on the part of parents who are sending their children to school to pay for their tuition. It's a church. It's a covenant communal enterprise. Why? Because, of course, the parents benefit from the education of their children, but society and the church benefits from that as well. Now, again, we're rugged individualists as North Americans. We need to begin to think more covenantally, not individualistically. I say this to parents, and I say this to all of you that are members. Remember when we had uh, Benjamin Pay, 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 baptized? We read the con- we, we read the question to the congregation: Do you also commit to praying and supporting the raising of Benjamin Pay in the Christian life? Everybody said amen. Well, that's not just an amen on that Sunday, and it becomes something in the distant recesses of the past. It means you've committed to supporting that as a congregation, corporately, together. So we're just getting started with this Covenant City Academy. 
small in numbers at the moment, but we have a big vision. We have a huge responsibility. We have a huge commitment as a congregation to support that work, to come alongside the parents as brothers and sisters in Christ and say, we're with you, we're for you, and until the day I die, I'm going to support Christian education. The covenant, the gospel, the consequences. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet. We pray that you would continue to encourage us, lead us, and guide us uh, by that word and by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.